Thank you, Jay. Well, good morning, folks. Really glad you all are here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, why don't you grab them at this point in time, and let's turn to the passage that Jay just read for us, Haggai chapter 2. If uh, you're in your pew Bible, that should be uh, in the pew back in front of you. It's page 769, towards the end of your Old Testament, the second, the third to last book in your Old Testament, the book of Haggai. We have been in a a short four-week sermon series entitled, Putting God First, from the book of Haggai. And this morning we're in part three, as God encourages an obedient people. As God encourages his obedient people. How does God encourage a people that are pursuing obedience to him? Three ways we'll find out this morning. Let's pray together and we'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would bless the hearing and teaching and preaching and receiving and living of your word, that you would be well pleased in all of these things. Move among us, be glorified through us, and may your word prosper in our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. A woman by the name of uh, Marion Gilbert once uh, wrote in to a local newspaper and uh, told of a short story about the power of encouragement. She wrote this. One morning, I opened the door to get the newspaper, as always, and I was surprised to to, to see a, a strange little dog with our newspaper in his mouth. She writes, delighted with this unexpected delivery service, I decided to reward him and encourage him, and I fed him some treats. Well, the following morning, I was horrified to see the same dog sitting in front of our door, wagging his tail, surrounded by eight newspapers. She goes on to write, I spent the rest of the morning returning the newspapers to our neighbors. You know, I think sometimes all we need is a little bit of encouragement, you know? As we open to Haggai chapter 2, we find that God's people were in a place where they needed a little encouragement as well. In chapter 1, last week, we saw the people of God responding to God's rebuke. They dedicated themselves afresh to rebuild the temple project that had been fallow for 16 years. But after just one month of working on rebuilding the temple, discouragement and fear had set in. So what does God do? He sends a second message through the prophet Haggai to encourage his people in Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 from which we will discover three ways that God encourages an obedient people. He encourages them number one by his presence. He encourages them number two by his protection. And he encourages them number three with his promises, with his presence, with his protection and with his promises. Well, if you have your Bible, let's take a look at Haggai chapter 2, because there in verses 1 through 4, we see God encouraged his old covenant people with his presence. Haggai's second message was given, like I said, about, about a month after the Jewish remnant had responded to his first message. They began to rebuild the temple. And the message uh, in chapter 2 begins, as normal, by naming the recipients of the message, including this time, not just the leaders of the people, but God speaks to the remnant of the people, to all of the people. Let's take a look in verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the political leader, to Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, the spiritual leader, and, notice this, to the remnant of the people. 
So God not only wants to speak to the leadership of Israel, he wants to speak to everyone. And we'll see why in just a minute in verse 3. He names the recipients of the message. He begins his sermon with a question in verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? See, likely there were men and women who had seen the previous temple. The temple built by Solomon in all of its splendor and glory. They had seen the previous temple. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They were ushered off into captivity. They had returned. And now they were standing on the very grounds of the former temple, uh, shovel in hand. They were rebuilding what had been destroyed. And they began to look at the structure that they were building. And they remembered in their minds what the old temple looked like. And it seemed like nothing to them. It was paltry. It was small. It lacked the glory of what had come before. They looked at the structure before them, and they became very discouraged. I ran across an artist I had never heard of this week, and uh, his name is Luis Urculo. And apparently one of the things he does is is he uses, he makes art with kind of everyday materials. So one of the things that he did in in a video and and with some pictures was he made models of some very famous buildings, I think some that you would be familiar with, out of just very common materials. So here's a picture, number one, uh, his rendering of the John Hancock Center. There it is. And you can see that he made this rendering out of books and candles, right? That's the John Hancock Center. Well, here's the real John Hancock Center, right? That's what it really looks like. The second one is an image of the Sears Tower. Again, we should be familiar of it. He makes it out of knives and out of toothpicks. Well, here's the real one behind me. That's the real Sears Tower. Maybe you've been there before. The third thing he did was uh, a museum out of New York called the Gutenheim Museum. If you'll uh, look behind me, he made it out of bowls and plates, right? Well, here's what the real thing looks like behind me there in New York. Pretty cool. I think it's interesting. But here's the reason why we're looking at his art. See, as the, the people of God looked at the temple that they were building, and they compared it to Solomon's temple, it must have looked like this man's models compared to the real thing, right? It was just a mere image. It was nothing compared to the glory of their former temple. And they were discouraged. Knowing that discouragement was setting in, that the good old days, so to speak, seem better than the here and now, God, in verse 4, encourages his people. He tells them to be strong three times and to work. And the reason why they could be strong and they should continue their work was because he was with them. He would help them. Notice verse 4. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. See, in chapter 1, God had motivated his people to rebuild the temple. Now he strengthens them to rebuild with these words of encouragement. And that leads us to our first point to ponder. God not only encouraged them with his presence, but God encourages us, his people now, the church with his presence. Not only did God encourage them with the promise of his presence, but he encourages us as well to continue to be obedient to him as his blood-bought people, promising us his enabling presence. It's been referenced this morning already, but I think of the passage in Matthew 28, 
commonly called the Great Commission. There Jesus promises his presence with us as we set out to make disciples of all the nations. He says, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And as Jesus sent out his, us out his disciples, he, we go out with all authority, right? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth that he can empower us with as we go about the task of making other Christians. I think of this wonderful promise in the book of James. You may be familiar with it. There in James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. As we take steps to draw near to God, to obey him, how does God respond? When we dedicate ourselves afresh to obedience to the Lord, as these people do, how does God respond? He responds by drawing near to us. James says this, come near to God to obey him, and what, what will he do? He will come near to you to enable you. Friends, let me ask you a question. What is God calling you to do today in obedience to his word that you may be struggling to do, that you may be discouraged with, that you may be fearful to do? Is it respecting a husband who may not be worthy of respect? Is it loving a wife that might be hard to love? Is it honoring a boss or a political leader who simply acts dishonorably? Is it fighting the temptation of lust or battling the enticement of worry? Maybe it's bearing the spirit-wrought fruit of patience with very impatient children. Maybe it's forgiving a hurt that to you feels so unforgivable. Friends, whatever it may be, know as you determine as a believer in Christ to obey God, God then responds. He promises supernatural enablement for the task that he's calling you and I to do. We are not alone. Well, in verses 1 through 4, God encouraged his people with his presence. But not only that, he also encouraged them in verse 5 with his providential protection. His providential protection. You know, I ran across a story this week from Moody uh, Bible Institute's magazine, Today in the Word. And it's a story of God protecting his providential protection over some missionaries. Uh, a missionary couple by a husband's name was John Patton. And uh, they were out among some natives that they were trying to reach with the gospel. And uh, the natives uh, surrounded them, to make a long story short, and they intended to burn the house down and to kill the missionaries. Well, he and his wife, of course, went to prayer. They had no other means to go to. And during that terror-filled night, they prayed that God would deliver them. Well, the morning came, and they were uh, alive. And not only that, but the, the people from the tribe had gone. Well, about a month later, uh, Patton comes to find out that uh, the, the, the lead chief had come to Christ. He had come to Christ, and so he was having a conversation with them, and he said, why did you not attack us that night? Why did you not come and burn us out and kill us? And the chief replied, well, who were those men that were with you that night? He knew that they were the only ones there, so he said, what, what men? And the chief went on to describe how they were afraid to attack because they had seen hundreds of large men in shining garments with swords drawn encircling that little house where the missionaries were. It's an incredible story that we see time and time again throughout the scriptures that God providentially chooses to protect his people when they pursue obedience to him. And that's what God promised his people in Haggai 2.5. Let's take a look at it. This is what, says the Lord, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. So what should they do? Do not fear. 
See, many times in the Bible, God's presence among his people, I am with you, is linked with his providential protection of his people, as it is in this passage. The reference, notice, did you reference, did you notice the reference of the Holy Spirit? God says, my spirit remains among you, right? My spirit remains among you. It's a reference to Isaiah 63. You can read it when you go home. But there in Isaiah 63, verses 11 through 14, we see a picture of God providentially protecting the Israelites as they walked through the Red Sea, being protected from, of course, Pharaoh and his armies, which were nipping at their heels. And there it speaks of the Holy Spirit protecting the people of God sovereignly and powerfully. That's what God is saying. He said, my spirit remains among you. It's like he's saying that same spirit that was uh, with your ancestors, that parted the waters, that led you through the sea, protecting you from Egypt. He says, friends, that same spirit is still with you. I'm still with you. And because he was, what were they to do? He very clearly says, do not fear. See, we have to remember that the people of the Lord were undertaking a pretty massive building project, rebuilding the temple, and there's a reason why they hadn't built it for 16 years. Because the nations surrounding them were threatening them with violence. The, uh, the Persian Empire that was above them was, was putting political pressure on them. And so it wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't a safe thing for them to obey God and to rebuild the temple. So reasonably, they had fear. One commentator put it this way. Undoubtedly, fear gripped many of the returnees. Fear that God had written an eternal Ichabod over Jerusalem. Fear that no amount of praying or piety would induce him to bless them again. Fear that the whole endeavor was in vain. Fear that the political enemies would in fact win. Fear that all was lost. So they rightly feared, and God encourages them. He says, I'm with you and I will providentially protect you. So what does God do to encourage a fearful people? He reminds them of his providential protection. And that leads us to a second point to ponder. Not only does God encourage his people of old with his providential protection, but we see in the New Testament God does the same. He encourages us with his providential protection over us as we pursue obedience to him. I think of many times that this command... Do not be afraid, people of God. Don't fear, is reiterated in the New Testament. Let me just read a few. Jesus says to his disciples, regarding those who will oppose them, and friends, we will be opposed as Christians. Matthew 10, verse 26 and 28. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. God providentially is over us. God gave a similar encouragement to Paul. Paul on his missionary journeys in Acts 18, 9 through 10, God says this, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking the gospel. Do not be silent. Why? Verse 10, For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, speaks to Christians that are persecuted. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 3, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Jesus says to a church in the, the, the city of Smyrna, there in Revelation chapter 2, he says, You are about to undergo persecution. 
But notice what he says in verse 10 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will come and put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer, suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the victor's crown. So friends, let me ask you today. Do you have any fears about what might happen if you choose to obey God? If you choose to pursue obedience to him? I think we all do. Maybe you fear the opinion of your friends or your family members. If you speak the truth of God on issues related to sexuality or marriage. Maybe you fear what will happen if you speak about the gospel and Christ at your workplace. Maybe you fear what will happen if you choose to respect your husband without first demanding that he love you. Or that you love your wife without first demanding she respect you. You're afraid of what will happen if I put my neck on the line. You might be afraid of what will happen if you are the first to say, I am sorry, I was wrong. Teenagers, you might be fear, uh, fearful to stand out at your schools if you maybe choose to dress more modestly than other friends or students in your class or to not go to the parties where generally you know you shouldn't be. See, choosing to obey God, it can be a scary thing. It can be a scary thing. And there are often negative consequences that come. But God tells his people of old, and he tells us now, fear not, fear not, I am with you. So how does God encourage an obedient people? He encourages us with his presence and with his providential protection. But not only that, he encourages us, third, with his promises, with his promises to us. This little section ends with a prophetic promise from God to his old covenant people regarding the future of the very temple that they were working on. Let's take a look in verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This language that we see in verse 6 of the shakings of the heavens and the earth, the sea and the, dry, and the dry land. I believe it's a figurative language to describe a future disruption of the world order. Remember, Israel was not independent. They were under pagan Persian rule. Here, God promises, there will be a day when I will shake up things. You won't be under Gentile oppression anymore. And notice, what will come into this temple, this temple that seems so paltry and small that you think is insignificant. What am I going to bring to it? Tribute from the nations, right? The gold is mine, says the Lord. The silver is mine. It will flow into a future temple as predicted by Isaiah in chapter 60, Zechariah in chapter 14. The Lord is painting a picture for them and saying, yes, it seems small and insignificant, but one day, friends, one day, it will be filled with glory and money, and my kingdom will come. I love this image, right? The Lord says that he will shake the nations, and that money 
will come trickling into the temple. I, I've spoken of uh, my Uncle Clifford before, and so I will be brief. Everybody has a crazy uncle in their family. Uncle Clifford is mine. He's not really crazy, but he's a fun-loving, jovial, jokester kind of a guy. And uh, uh, he would torment me as a child. In a loving way, of course. Um, he would tickle me until I peed my pants. Not fun, but true. And uh, one of the things that he would do, or almost pee my pants, one of the things that he would do is uh, he would... Uh, he would I'd go into his home and he'd say, you got some money for me? I'd be like, no. He'd be like, are you sure? So I was little then, you know. And so he, he grabbed me and turned me upside down and grabbed me by the heels and gave me a little shake, 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 right? And if I had anything in my pockets, which I never did, um, they, they'd come out, right? He's just, he's just playing with me. That's what God says he will do to the nations on that day. He'll grab them by the ankles and he'll give them a shake and the nations will give their tribute to the Lord and to his people. In that day. But not only that, God promises that he would once again fill the temple with glory. Remember, that's what happened with Solomon, right? Solomon prayed, they built the temple, and the Lord filled the temple with his glory, the visible presence, his visible presence, and it had gone. The Lord says, One day, this very temple that you're building, it's going to be filled once again with my glory. So the Lord encouraged his discouraged people, his fearful people, with his promises. Friends, he does the same for us today. God encourages us with his promises as well. Just as God encouraged his downtrodden people with his promises, God does the same for you and I. And what was the thrust of that promise to them? It was that God would use their and our kingdom efforts, our temple building work, if you will, to do great and wonderful things beyond even our imaginations. He says, your kingdom efforts are not futile. They're not done in vain. I think of a couple passages. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, on the screen behind me. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what he was telling his old covenant people, and he tells us that today. Your work is not in vain. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good. Why? For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, though we have God's promises, we too can be discouraged in building God's kingdom through his church. We too can become discouraged as we look at other ministries, other churches that seem to have more glory than we do. That's what the people of God were doing. They were looking back on the good old days and they said, it's just not the same. We can look at our own efforts in Bible study, in Sunday school, in youth group, in Awana, whatever it may be, in our evangelistic efforts, and we may uh, have uh, discouragement, right? We may say, what, God, are you using this? Is this making any difference? We might even be discouraged by the compulsion of comparison. Don't we all have the compulsion of comparison? That's exactly what the people of God struggled with. They looked back and they said, man, this is just not as good as the good old days. It's not how things used to be. It's not what God used to be doing. And they were discouraged. I love what Pastor John Piper says about this passage. There's a quote on the screen behind me. He says this, I think anybody who has ever undertaken a work for the cause of Christ has felt that kind of discouragement. The sense that you work and work and the product seems so paltry. You pour yourself into a thing week after week and month after month and the fruit is so minimal. Then you look back in history and across town and see the grand achievements of others and your temple 
seems so trivial. And you get discouraged. And you are tempted to quit and put away your aspirations and drop your dreams and put up your, free, your feet in front of the TV and coast. Who wants to be devoted to a, his li- Who wants to devote his life to a second-rate temple? But, he says, but God promises to take your work, to fill it with his glory, and to make your labors worth a million times more than you ever imagined. Take courage. You build more than you see. There is a principle here, he says, that applies to me and you. God takes small, imperfect things and builds them into a habitation for his glory. Oh, how we should take courage in our little spheres of influence. Nothing you do is a trifle if you do it in the name of God. He will shake the heaven, heavens and the earth and fill your labor, labor with splendor. So he wraps it up by saying this, take courage. You build more than you see. Friends, take courage. We build more than we can see. We all need a little bit of encouragement, don't we, from time to time to continue to be obedient to God as the people of God. Friends, my prayer is that he would encourage us with his presence. I'm with you. My prayer is that he would encourage us with his protection. Do not fear. And my prayer is that he would encourage us with his promises, right? You build more than you could ever see. Let's pray.